weeks ago, who could have predicted the terrible situation that does now confront the Middle East? Here's how the Jordanian King Abdullah put it this week. The whole region is at the brink of falling into the abyss that this new cycle of death and destruction is pushing us towards. The threat of this war expanding is real. The cost this will bring on all of us is too much to bear. And who could accuse him of exaggerating? The crisis puts many of Israel and Palestine's neighbours in a difficult position. Some, like Jordan and Egypt, which share a border with Israel, have full diplomatic relations. Some of the Gulf countries, most notably Saudi Arabia, were on the path to normalisation. Other countries remain bitterly opposed to even the notion of the existence of Israel. And all the while, support for the Palestinian cause remains strong in Arab countries, though sometimes the rhetoric is stronger than the action. This morning, we're seeking a breakdown of the various reactions among the neighbours in the Arab world and try to understand what role they might play in averting a broader conflict, or the reverse, has to be said. Gaith Al-Amairi is a senior fellow at the Washington Institute for Near East Studies. He's been writing very interesting pieces on this. Uh, from 1999 to 2006, he was an advisor to the Palestinian negotiating team, as well as holding various other positions within the Palestinian Authority. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you for having me. First, though, I must ask you, um, your takeaways from the extraordinary visit of the US President Joe Biden uh, on Wednesday. Uh, he's allegedly the most popular man in Israel at the moment. I wonder how you rated it. I mean, you know, it. I, I can give it an A and an F at the same time. An A in the sense that what you just said, it resonated within Israel. I think it's uh, clearly... Uh, you know, sent a message of support. I think Israelis today see him as the most popular politician in Israel, and all of this is right. And this is very important because U.S. commitment to Israel is a key part of U.S. policy in the Middle East. On the other hand, the way it was received in the Arab world was extremely dis uh, disconcerting. You know, to get someone like the King of Jordan, the one of the closest allies of the U.S. Uh, of, uh, in, the, in the Middle East, to cancel a planned summit, with with Biden, tells you how much the king felt he was under pressure from his own public because the president of the U.S. was not very popular. So while this uh, certainly pushed the kind of American interest in projecting support for Israel, it created serious problems for uh, Arab leaders vis-a-vis uh, -vis their own publics. Mm. Uh, it, it would have been extremely difficult after that uh, strike, though, wouldn't it? Which, of course, now, you know, it, it does appear to have been a, um, a failed missile strike to have actually gone and met him. Uh, it, it would have been, it was unlikely, don't you think? I would have been impossible. I mean, uh, if you look actually uh, after the news broke, and you're right, the news in then was fake news, uh, yet the narrative had stuck. And immediately after that, I saw some footage of demonstrators, uh, Jordanian demonstrators in front of the Israeli embassy in Jordan. Images that I have not seen at least since 2011. This is almost unprecedented. So the public pressure was such that no Arab leader would have, uh, you know, survived unscathed if they were to mm. be seen uh, with, a, with the American president. 
Mm. Um, okay, uh, what I'm really keen um, to do is to sort of go around the region to make it clearer for our listeners because, you know, it does seem sort of extraordinarily complicated and I think people just say, oh, well, I can't understand it. So let's try. Let's uh, try Egypt and Jordan first, who possibly, I mean, they've made peace with Israel, but um, I, I wonder, particularly Egypt, I mean, there's tremendous pressures, are there not, on Egypt uh, in, in all of this? I mean, absolutely. I mean, first of all, as you rightly said, Jordan and Egypt are unique because they share borders with Israel. And that changes the nature of the dynamics. For Egypt, for example, with what's happening in Gaza right now, the Egyptians are very concerned that there will be a huge population, you know, a refugee flow. Uh, Gaza has a bit more than 2 million people, a million refugees in, in Egypt. That will be a, a disaster for Egypt. You know, the Egyptians, for example, look at Jordan. Jordan, with the civil, Syrian civil war, received close to a million uh, Syrian refugees a decade ago, and their refugees are still there. Egypt does mm. not want a new refugee population. This can be destabilizing from a security point of view. Egypt has serious economic problems. This will add to it. So it's not only kind of a symbolic or a diplomatic concern that they have. They have really immediate uh, uh, national security, border security control. The Jordanians ditto. They are afraid that uh, if things spill over to the West Bank, then they will spill over to Jordan itself. So their concerns are both diplomatic, but also you know, hardcore national security concerns. But they've also got to keep, well, they think they've certainly got to keep up their relations with Israel as well. They're not interested in unravelling that peace deal, are they? Oh, oh, most certainly. Most certainly. I mean, uh, the peace deal for both Jordan and Egypt comes with many advantages. The security coordination and cooperation between these two countries and uh, Israel are very, very deep and very essential for the national security of everyone okay. involved. But also, it's uh, this is a piece of the relation of these two countries with the United States. And if the peace treaty were to uh, uh, collapse, then the Jordan-US, Israel-US, sorry, Egypt-US uh, relations would also suffer tremendously. What about Jordan, which you've mentioned already? Um, what measures have the Jordanians brought in to prevent unrest growing? And what measure of influence would you say Abdullah has in Israel? I mean, first of all, uh, domestically, what the Jordanians did was basically uh, a combination of things. First of all, they have uh, banned any gatherings close to the Israeli borders to ensure that there's no infiltration or no friction with the Israeli soldiers. Um, they're trying to also uh, ride the wave in some ways. Today, for example, there were big demonstrations. Today is Friday. It's the Muslim holy day where there's a lot of people exiting the mosque at the same time. So there were big demonstrations. If you look at the demonstrations, the Jordanians actually put some of their own officials to head the demonstration to signal to the public that uh, the, you know, the government is with the public. So they're trying to basically direct and contain and absorb uh, the anchor. In terms of influence with Israel, the relation between the king and Netanyahu is extremely bad. There is no trust between the two and each will uh, tell you, you know, have their own reasons for not trusting the other. Yet Jordan, the Jordanian military and intelligence have very strong relations with their Israeli counterparts. And the Israelis see Jordan, the military and intelligence folks in Israel, in Israel see Jordan as a key component of Israel's national security. So there are a lot of intensive talks as we speak, you know, below the radar between the security folks and the Jordanians hoping uh, that the Israeli security and defense people will pressure the, the Prime Minister to tamp things down a little bit. Okay. Let's go to Lebanon. 
Now, that's a very different relationship. It's certainly not peaceful. And obviously the rocket fire uh, across Israel and the Lebanese border is going in both directions. Do you think this is where the greatest risk of escalation lies if Hezbollah gets involved? Most certainly, most certainly. I mean, you know, to add to the complex picture you already drew, um, uh, Lebanon is basically a failed state, uh, economically a failed state, and the militia, the Hezbollah, the biggest militia, the strongest actor in that uh, country is not under the government's control, rather it's under Iran's control. So there is a real concern that that might uh, uh, explode. Already we're seeing low-intensity clashes really over the last maybe five, six days, nonstop between Israel and uh, Hezbollah. So far it's contained, but any miscalculation, any mistake could uh, lead to a major uh, escalation. In 2006, there was a war between Mm -hmm. Hezbollah and uh, Israel that devastated Lebanon. So not only is Israel uh, afraid of uh, another front, I spoke to many Lebanese civilians who actually are very worried that they'll have a repeat of 2006. Yet, uh, as I mentioned... uh, uh, They really don't want war. I've been, you know, watching various... The Lebanese people, whether they've got in a say in anything, of course, really don't want war. And I might add, Hassan Nasrallah has, to my knowledge, not yet spoken, the head of uh, Hezbollah. uh, for for such a prolific speaker, um, that was very noteworthy. He has not spoken because he knows that's a very delicate situation. On the one hand, he's waiting to see what he hears from the Iranians. And the Iranians might not be interested in opening a front right now. They don't want uh, Hezbollah, their main asset in that region, to also be degraded in a, in a war. And at the same time, Nasrallah also knows that uh, the Lebanese, as you rightly said, are not uh, do not want to war. So he's also handling a very delicate uh, situation. But ultimately, his decision will come from Tehran. Iran, uh, not from Beirut. Maybe we should go. I was going to go to Saudi next. Let's go to Iran then. Um, <laughs> yes, what what does your uh, guessing game see with Iran at the moment? What are they trying to do? And it is a guessing game. You know, we don't really know. Uh, to get into the head of the supreme leader there is next to impossible. Yet, if you look at the way that Iran conducts its foreign policy, Iran believes that instability serves its purposes. Whenever there's instability in the region, they insert themselves and they uh, uh, try to exert control. We saw that in Iraq, we saw that in Syria, certainly in Lebanon, in Yemen with the Houthi group. And they are hoping that the instability in uh, the Israel-Palestine arena possibly spilling over into Jordan and Egypt, will give them a foothold in that whole thing. So for now, the Iranians are interested. Yet the Iranians know that the U.S. is extremely uh, anxious and takes the threat seriously. It is not a small thing to send two aircraft carriers to the eastern Mediterranean. Uh, The Ford and the Eisenhowers are on its way. This is a clear message for Iran as well, has to calculate how far it can push its proxies, yet at the same time not trigger something, uh, a confrontation with the United States. Oh, that was what the extraordinary thing of watching that uh, man, you know, called Sleepy Joe, you know, and watching him deliver that don't, don't, don't uh, effectively to Iran, I thought it was just quite remarkable to watch. Uh, I had so vivid. <laughs> An indicative of how seriously the uh, threat is seen. Look, I mean, when you plan for, uh, when you do risk planning, you, you plan for the most likely, but you also plan for the most severe. 
And while, you know, people might not think that a war with uh, um, Iran is severe, sorry, is, is likely, but it's very severe. And so I think Biden was sending a very, very clear message. It's not only him. You know, he mobilized the whole of government from the Secretary of Defense to the Secretary of State to the CIA director. Uh, this, this, this country, the national security team in Washington here is on full alert. Mm. Saudi Arabia. Many eyes have turned there. I mean, this is probably what it's all about because the Saudis looked like they were going to do a deal. I mean, they even announced that it was sort of in in, in a, a very developed uh, process uh, between Israel and Saudi Arabia. Now, really complex and competing aims, wouldn't you say, for the kingdom? Is it clear to you exactly where Mohammed bin Salman sees Saudi Arabia's best interests lying in the longer term or even the medium term? Um, another difficult question because uh, Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince, is probably one of the most unpredictable uh, uh, leaders in the region for good and for ill. Uh, but as I see it, uh, for Saudi Arabia, I think they have three sets of considerations to take into account. One, Saudi is a country that sees itself as the leader in both the Muslim and Arab world. And so it wants to take a position that does not leave it exposed to attacks from its uh, rivals vis-a-vis the Palestinians. You know, the Palestinian issue is still very popular with Arab and Muslim countries. And uh, Saudi wants to take a rhetorically tough position to make sure that the Iranians don't try to undermine them, the Turks don't try to undermine them, these are competitors. So that's one. It's the regional leadership uh, component. Two, I think, uh, you know, during the talks that you referred to between Israel and Saudi Arabia via the United States, Saudis were criticized, uh, basically uh, being said, you know, being described as selling the, out the Palestinians. I think the very, I would say, rhetorically tough position that Mohammed bin Salman has been taking is partly intended to burnish his own credentials vis-a-vis Arabs and Muslims to basically say, look, I am pro Palestinian, I'm not giving up on the Palestinians. Yet, at the bottom of all of this, I would say that the uh, deep strategic interest that uh, drove the Israelis and the Saudis to talk are still unchanged, whether it is the common fear of Iran, whether it is the common desire for economic development, you know, matching Saudi uh, money with Israeli technology, uh, these are still there. And I suspect that once things calm down, uh, that particular track will be revived. Uh, well, it is interesting you say one things, once things calm down. Some writers have said one of the really strong um, recollections we all have of, say, the end of World War II, but it was still on, was the drama and authority conferred on, say, Churchill and FDR. Stalin was in the mix, of course. Uh, sketching and dreaming of what peace would look like post-war. Now, we haven't seen anything like that, really, have we? Uh, well, have we? Do you think we've seen that, that people might say, well... There it is. There's the glittering prize if we can hold out. We haven't seen it yet. I mean, partly because it's too early. It's really, I mean, you know, we're talking, it's been two weeks, yet uh, we have not even seen the beginning of the first phase of the Israeli ground uh, operation, which to my mind is inevitable. The, uh, you know, the development of uh, hostilities on the ground will ultimately drive diplomacy and not the other way around. So today the focus is on humanitarian, but also the focus is on exploring, I think, privately behind the scenes, what are the, what is within the realm of the possible when it comes to the day uh, after. It's very clear that Israel is intending to uh, uh, remove Hamas from power. Now, will they succeed? Will they fail? That's a different conversation. Yet, if they were to succeed, I think I'm already hearing in my conversations with you know diplomats from different countries, the question, what comes next, etc. But, but the options are very limited as well. You know, it, 
Go ahead, please. Well, I just must ask you about Turkey because I've only got you back for another minute. I want to do Turkey in the West Bank. Turkey's supposedly helping with trying to uh, get the hostages out. Have you heard more about that? Uh, not really. They're offering their help. If any country is helping right now, it is the Qataris. The Qataris, uh, because of their strong relations with Hamas, which is both a liability and an asset. Yet the Turks have really been remarkably uh, absent. It, you know, uh, only a few uh, statements. It's notable that I think uh, uh, Blinken, the American Foreign Secretary, did not actually visit uh, Ankara in his uh, trip. So they're not really big actors mm-hmm. now. Okay, uh, West Bank, just before I let you go, uh, which is another sort of, uh, some of the scenes from West Bank are extremely concerning. Um, and we're going to talk about it next with a guest who actually actually offers some hope about it. But what do you see happening there? Surprisingly, things have been uh, quiet. And when I say this, I, you know, it's all relative. What I heard yesterday, there were more than 70 Palestinians killed since October 7th. So it's not very quiet yet. The fear of, you know, large scale disturbances and demonstrations, etc., have not materialized. Very hard to explain why. I think there is still a reluctance uh, to go into a full-fledged kind of security breakdown because uh, the Palestinians there remember the second intifada where they paid the, uh, the biggest price for the uncertainty. Yet it's so volatile that any small incident could actually trigger uh, things there. So I would keep a very close eye and everything that I'm hearing from there is actually causing me concern. All right, Gaith, thank you very much indeed. Um, I'm sure we'll speak again. I appreciate your time. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you. Gaith uh, Alamari is a senior fellow at the Washington Institute for Near East Studies and if you care, Near East Policy, pardon me. Wrote a very good piece in Foreign Affairs magazine if you care to check it out. Getting in touch with ABC RN is easy. Join the conversation live using the ABC Listen app's call and text features.